How can we make insurance fair and ethical with AI? This is Benevolent Bots, discussions on a safer, smarter future. Brought to you by Lemonade. Hey everyone, welcome to Benevolent Bots, brought to you by Lemonade. I'm Tulsi Doshi, AI ethics advisor for Lemonade, and I'm here with Daniel Schreiber, Lemonade CEO. This is a podcast where we're exploring the intricate world of AI and insurance. And on today's episode, we're exploring transparency and history and stories. How do we balance between seamless, personified experiences and the explainability and understanding users should have and are asking for? How do we learn from the past to inform the way that we build for the future? Joining us for this conversation is the director of the School of Cybernetics at the Australian National University, director of the 3A Institute and senior fellow at Intel Corporation, Genevieve Bell. Recently, she's been working with the 3A Institute to build a new applied science to manage AI safely, to scale and rethink how we approach designing, building, managing, and regulating AI-enabled technologies. Genevieve also happens to be one of my favorite people and one of the reasons I joined the field, so very excited to have her here today. Welcome, Genevieve. Thank you so much for joining us. I want to start today's conversation actually with the idea of storytelling. I think one of the things, you know, I know you emphasize in your work and we've talked about a lot is the stories we tell around the technology we build. I think that's actually often undervalued when we're building products. And so, and, and, you know, especially when you think about insurance, which is an industry that has had stories told about it for years. Now, as we're coming into using machine learning for insurance, why do you think that the stories we tell about technology are so important? And, and how do you think we should actually be applying that when we're building and designing products? Oh, gosh, that's such a good question, Tulsi. For me, there's kind of, there's two pieces to that question. Piece number one is that I sometimes think we tell stories about technology as though we've just invented them. So we tell the story that says, look, we've just solved this marvelous new problem. Here's this great thing. And there's a seduction in imagining you're starting with a clean slate, right? That you are starting with no history, no baggage. Here's this wonderful, shiny new thing that's going to solve this wonderful problem. And of course, the reality to that is that what it usually does is mask two things. One, an enormous amount of work that went to getting to the current moment, that work which has involved solving different kinds of problems in other kinds of spaces. (laughs) And often, we're not good then at making the through line between what were the problems that were being solved then and what are the legacies of those problems that kind of lurk in the current solution. And I think by the same token, in that desire to kind of tell a story about the now, what we also get rid of is all the the other ways in which that technology or that solution has been tied up with other kinds of stories. And so I think we do a good job at the moment in telling stories about technology, but those stories tend to be very presentist. So they're very kind of grounded in the, the now. And it means that we aren't good at unfolding all the perils and pitfalls that have already come before us that we could learn from. And so I can give you, for me, the kind of my favorite example, it's not in the insurance sector, comes from cameras. So I'm currently looking at you and Daniel via a webcam sitting on top of my laptop. It's not really a camera. It's a digital compilation of algorithms and a bit of kit, not the camera in the classic sense, but, you know, it's running an algorithm or a set of them. Those algorithms in turn have been created over decades to mimic old-fashioned cameras, the kind that, you know, Daniel and I probably grew up with, no insult intended, Daniel, but I think we might be of a similar vintage. So we had cameras that had mechanical bits in them. And, you know, there was a lot of kind of notions of mirrors and lenses reflecting light. 
and film that ran through them. Film in turn was optimized around certain kinds of images and certain kinds of landscapes and certain kinds of faces. And the very first photographs that were taken en masse were taken during the American Civil War. So in 1862, 1863 by a man named Matthew Brady. And Matthew Brady was photographing northern soldiers who were mostly, I hate to say, deceased. And he got really good at photographing those kind of faces. His images become a thing that is shared all over the world and shared all over America. And ultimately, his ideas about how to photograph a face and what a good photograph look like get canonized by our good friends at Kodak, who then create a series of test faces to optimize film around, who all look like me. (laughs) And as this may be a podcast that's not visual, that would be pale skin, blue eyes, dark eyebrows, red hair, and like, you know, a very particular kind of face, Anglo-Celt. By the time we get to digital cameras, it's the Kodak, Kodachrome film that is considered to be the baseline standard. And so it's not until you get into, well, 2021, 2022, when Google launches its most recent generation of the Pixel camera and the most recent version of Google Photo that it created a new set of algorithms to auto-correct 170 years of ways of thinking about the contrast between light and dark so that your skin Tulsi looks as good on the camera as mine does. And so here is a technology embedded in everything, right? Cameras are in our phones, they're in our laptops, they're in our world. And yet the notion of the thing it wanted to most see and that it sees best was set back in 1862. And there were a series of waypoints all the way along where people made decisions that get you to the present day with a technology that seems incredibly, in some ways, banal, that's also full and riddled with inequity. With all kinds of nuances that you never even realized. Yeah. And so for me, there's a little bit about as we unfold the stories, we tend to unfold the ones about how cool is this? (laughs) It it will do all this amazing stuff. And we don't go, yeah, also here's all the the other things that happened along the way. And so for me, telling the story of a camera isn't just telling a story of compression and speed and pixels. It's also telling a story about Matthew Brady and Kodachrome and the guys at Samsung, right? And for me, those stories are really powerful ways of saying we can't just fix it now because we have to actually understand where it came from, what all the other decisions were that were being made. Yeah. And I guess actually, you know, that is a really good segue to Daniel. How do you think about that in the context of insurance, right? So when you think about building the new age of insurance companies. And if you think about it like the camera, you know, which has a history of being existent for years and something that we take for granted, honestly, as a piece of technology, as a part of our lives. How do you think about the various pieces that have come into play and and what kinds of challenges does that create for insurance today? Well, and that was such a wonderful example. I love storytelling. I tell young entrepreneurs that job number one of a CEO of a founder is storytelling. Not algorithms, not marketing. It's all about storytelling. So I totally agree. And yes, we had a dark room in our house growing up in in London. So I know exactly what you're talking about. (laughs) And Tulsi, I'll explain to you later what a dark room is. Uh, Luckily, um, I have seen those on TV. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Insurance is full of stories, isn't it? It's wonderful in that sense. And, And it goes back however long you want, and it can be taken in all different interesting direction. So I love to quote um, Guy Bernan of Francesco in Italy in the 14th century. And the modern insurance company was born in Italy in the 14th century. And he writes to his wife and he says, it is sweet to them to take the monies, but when disaster comes, it is otherwise. Each man draws his rump back and strives not to pay. <laughs> now, I'm not exactly sure what it means to <laughs> to draw your rump back up back, but 
I'm quite clear what the nature of his complaint is. And then you zoom forward to the Urban Dictionary today, which is, you know, the crowdsourced dictionary, and you look up the word insurance, and insurance is defined, the number one most voted definition of insurance is a promise to pay later that is never fulfilled, kind of channeling Francesco over 700 years. So that's been a, a constant narrative in insurance on the one hand, this deep distrust of insurance companies. And then there are some really positive things about insurance that we have as well. You know, insurance is based on pooling. It's about, you know, Bernoulli teaching us that the law of large numbers can be used to defeat chance and chance picks on people. And suddenly when we band together and we pool, we're able to use the power of the masses to protect the individual. And suddenly it looks like almost like a charity. It's about, you know, a social good. It's a community pooling their resources to help the weakest members in the hour of need, almost a textbook definition. And and that goes right back to primitive humans who pooled intuitively. And, you know, you'd earn a share of tomorrow's hunt by sharing your hunt today. And, And there's something so embedded into the very nature of us. So I think there's a lot of stories around insurance. Unfortunately, in the modern era, they tend to be very negative. But if I tie this back in to to Genevieve, to what you said, there are so many places where these stories do hurt us today. So an example, somewhat akin to your Kodak example. In car insurance, you seek ways to to quantify the risk of of somebody driving. And by and large, um, men tend to be dramatically more dangerous drivers than women. Per mile driven, it's about 10 times more dangerous. It's pretty striking. But a lot of regulators don't want people using gender as a rating factor. It's a matter of some debate among different regimes. And so all different proxies creep in. And a curious one that I encountered recently is a history of accidents in insurance. And you'd have thought that that is a highly predictive thing if you've had some kind of history of injury not accident, sorry, injury in a car that would be predictive of what kind of driver you are or some kind of signal. But it turns out that women get much more injured in cars than men do. And the reason for that is that iconic image of the crash dummy that we see in the commercials is always a male figure. And that for many decades, maybe even more than that, the crash has always been tested on a male-sized dummy. And therefore, all the safety features are designed for the male figure. And therefore, women get injured more. And it's actually not a signal. It's some kind of inherited bias that's been embedded into the system. And of course, throughout insurance, we see loads of those. So our stories are dangerous in that sense. Absolutely. You know, what's kind of interesting there, though, is Daniel, like you said, you you just encountered this as you were investigating the space and thinking more about it. You know, it makes me wonder, how do we avoid that, right? How do we, and to some degree, it's unavoidable because these are layers, these are parts of the stories and the histories that we're, we're learning from and growing up with. But what is it then that we need to be, as people who work in organizations and companies and on these products, as someone who worked on the Pixel camera or, and supported some of that effort, you don't learn these things in schools. You're not taught these stories in schools. What do we need to be doing in terms of our employees, our workforces, our education to actually bring some of these into our into our best practice? Listen, I think, Tulsi, one of the things that the history of technology in many places, in many kinds of spaces makes clear is that there are lines of inequity along which most technologies cleave. And, you know, those tend to be about things that are not surprising, gender, race, class, national status sometimes even religion, sometimes country of origin, uh, frequently able-bodiedness, increasingly other kinds of 
what we would think of as intersectionalities, right? But it is the case that most technologies have in them an imagined ideal scenario or state or body or person that is their operator or the subject of their operation, right? And as Daniel reasonably points out, it is often the case that that body is not an abstract body. It's an imagined as something, right? But we're really bad at being able to articulate what that something is. <laughs> so we say a crash test dummy. We don't say a crash test dummy man, even though for a really long time it was a crash test dummy man. Yeah, we generalize to simpler kind of concepts of the world. Yeah. And, you know, in our minds, those generalizations are general, but in reality, they're not. I mean, I remember working on a product at Intel a million years ago, actually Wi-Fi, which we really are talking a million years ago, at least, <laughs> the first test of the Wi-Fi router. And there were all these really interesting challenges with them when the routers went beyond America. And it turned out that the engineers had imagined that every home was the size of an American home. And they had built the router for the average home. But it was really hard to get anyone to articulate that the average home was more than just an average, which of course you fully understand in the insurance industry, right? Is that, you know, there are no average, there's no average human. It's why we're asked questions about age, gender, location, because what we're trying to do is manage specificities. And I think for me, Tulsi, the short answer, <laughs> too long, don't read. Short answer is, you know, that there are things we should always be paying attention to. And the problem, and you know, those are the things about race, class, gender, nationality, body type, embodiment, all of those things. The challenge, I think, in lots of organizations and in lots of places is that having to pay that much attention to things feels A, like unnecessary work when you could just have an average, and B, makes everything more complicated. And I think there is a resistance to complication and complexity because it makes getting to scale just that little bit harder, which is why, you know, as Daniel knows in his industry, we created actuarial tables so that you weren't insuring every individual, you were insuring classes of individuals because the complexity of trying to insure the entire population was just too much to manage. I do think that there's room for optimism, at least where insurance is concerned. <laughs> so there is a very strong financial incentive that I think is just beginning to come to the fore to be precise. And if one insurer is using broad proxies and the other is piercing through those proxies and looking at the individual and big data and AI allows you that, you know, actuaries can't do it, but machines can. And then suddenly if I can distinguish, instead of looking at men, I can distinguish a person, you know, and I can pierce through all those other descriptors that you said, where, where we tend to band groups of humans together as if they were monolithic, but they actually are not, and pierce through those, break those apart and look at the individual and actually assess their risk with as much precision as I can. I will have a, a better insurance company as a result of that. I will do better at matching rate to risk. And therefore, I won't be mispricing people. I'll be able to attract better customers by offer, by crediting their betterness with a lower rate. And I'll be unattractive to risks that are mispriced elsewhere because I will price them with precision. So I do think that the arc of history, at least in our industry, would militate towards ever greater precision. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right though. There's an interesting tension in it, right? As true, I suspect insurance as it might be in other things where a hyper customization or personalization has been a kind of a driving force, right? And I'm thinking of anything that fits in the recommendation engine space or the choice space. There is an interesting tension that sits for me at least between the notion of big data allowing us to exquisitely see someone in the moment 
and the idea that who people are in any moment in time is a backward-looking thing, not a forward-looking thing, at least to the algorithms. And I'm always really struck by the ways in which the history of recommendation engines, which is a shallow history, but the history of recommendation engines is one that is very much about imagining that humans are stable through time rather than adaptive and changeable. And I've always sort of thought one of the unexpected perils of those recommendation engines was that they want us to be who we have been, not who we are going to become. And there's something about stabilizing our histories as the predictor of our future behavior that is, for me, who is possibly even more optimistic than you, Daniel, actually really troubling. I'd like to imagine that I would be a healthier, happier person in 2022 than I was in 2021. You know, I would like to imagine that I might, and, you know, I will work on diligently doing that. I think one of the challenges about the way big data functions is that data is by its very nature in the past. And as a result, is also conservative, right? It's a it's a fixed, rigid thing. And you know, as you said, one of the impulses that humans have is their relationships to each other too. And so, one of the things that's much harder to work out in data about any individual is their relationships to the broader whole. All of which I know is a complicated insurance problem because whilst you can reasonably say men may men may be ten times more perilous behind a vehicle, but they're also on a road full of other people who will help monitor and regulate them. So I think this is really interesting tension for me, at least between hyper-specificity and the, the dual consequences of that, right? One is that it locks us into who we've been, not where we're going, and the other being that it doesn't always do a good job of triangulating our social context. Because we know for a lot of things in both the medical and psychological space, your broader social context is as important as your own individual state. So there's sort of a there's an interesting tension about how you manage all that stuff, right? And you know, it would be a different model of social surveillance to say, yes, we know you exquisitely, but if you tell us who your friends are, <laughs> we'll give you a deal. You're like, mm. Yeah. And there's, there's something intriguing about what you're saying. It just kind of, in terms of also the fairness of it, if I was to tell you a price based on how you drove in the last two years, you might feel that that was a fair thing. If I was through some prescience to tell you I'm going to give you a price based on how I think you're going to drive next year, you might react <laughs> less well to that. But I will tell you that actually there are some really interesting things in that regard, specifically in the area of driving, where, for example, a company called Metromile that we're actually at Lemonade, we're acquiring prices with retrospect. So at the end of the month, they tell you how you drove, how much you drove, and they present you with a bill and so it actually is retroactive in its outlook, not prospective. Which will be fascinating when you think about how do you use that to manage down risk. Because <laughs> I mean, the thing about, I mean, I've always thought the interesting tension in this way here is that it's a risk is a forward-looking thing, data is a backward-looking thing, and working out where the point is of the most exquisite intersection has to be a, well, an art and a science. And, and actually, that's where you get the challenge in fairness as well, right? So one of the things that we've been talking about on the Lemonade side is, okay, how do we evaluate the fairness of our risk assessment, right? So if we're assessing your likelihood of being a risk in the next year, how do you actually assess that? And the problem is you don't actually have ground truth, to your point, because data is backwards looking and risk is forwards looking. And so now you are assessing a notion of fairness based on another set of hypotheticals, right? And data of those around you or in similar environments or in similar conditions to use those to proxy behavior that you may have moving forward. 
And certainly for me, the last two years of data about me would tell you almost nothing about my usual risk profile as someone who had spent, you know, the 20 years. Been in lockdown, yes. yes. Someone who said the, the 20 years preceding the last two, you know, sort of in many, many places, having spent the last two in one place, it's a very different. I feel like, you know, there's a, an interesting, but it will be fascinating, right, about how we think about the data generated by the last two years versus the data generated in the five years before that and how we track what did and didn't change in that two-year period. I'm always sort of interested in, you know, how data accumulates and what it says, right? And one of the temptations often to smooth out the lumpiness, this particular lumpiness will be deeply, I suspect, instructive and really interesting. And hard to pull out, right? Because it's going to change our behaviors for the next two years and then the next decade to come and, and all of those things. I do want to actually pivot slightly, but building on this conversation to this, this going back to your point of like, we want to make things simpler, Right. And we do that in our companies, in the way that we design and build products, but we also do that in the products themselves, right? So if you think about the complexities of all the different things we're talking about around risk, we try not to present all of that to the end user. Most products that we build, we try to simplify the world for the end user. And part of that actually is, I think, to create delightful, magical, seamless, easier experiences for the end consumer. But now as we start talking about accountability and responsibility and safe AI, we talk a lot more about explainability. We should be telling users what they're experiencing. We should be giving them more context. How do you balance those things? How do you balance the desire for simplicity and magic in what we're building and the realities of the explanations, especially when you're talking about machine learning? Oh, good question. And again, it's one of those places where I suspect there's a a bit of a rub <laughs> between different human desires, cultural practices, legal frameworks. I mean, it's kind of messy that way, right? One of the ways I've historically thought about services, so you know, why it is that we pay for Netflix or Amazon or the New York Times, because I'm old, <laughs> or you know, my insurance. I company. also pay for the New York Times. Bless you, Tulsi. It's because I trained you well. That's what that means. <laughs> You know, why is it that we pay for certain kinds of services, right? Because what those services do is curate and edit the world for us, right? They manage down some of the noise and just give us the signal. And we know in purchasing them what the signal looks like. So we're making some decisions about what we do and don't want to hear, right? You know, we are in some ways, you know, we're in some ways editing the world for ourselves through these services. But part of what we're always paying for there is someone else managing the complexity. Growing up, I was part of a community of people who built their own PCs. And, you know, there was that whole hobbyist kind of hobbyist world that we moved in. And, you know, part of what happens in the 80s and 90s and certainly into the 2000s is that people have been willing to pay for someone else to do that for them. Like they were willing to kind of say, I no longer need to solder all those bits together. I think I can trust someone else to do it for me because I get mm -hmm. some other benefit in the them putting the plastic wrapper around it. And I think one of the tensions that we're in in this moment in time is that we don't yet know how to make sense of the people that are doing the wrapping, as it were, or the editing. And we aren't as clear about their motives, the ways they are regulated or self-regulated. And there have been enough stories that suggest their curatorial editing practices are suspect to make us wonder, right? And so I think there's this really interesting challenge, particularly for tech companies. And I say that as someone who sits inside one, right, is that we went from being makers of a technology that was then bundled by others to do things to people who are also actively acting on the world in very different kinds of ways. And I suspect one of the challenges that we have in that sense is that most people, when they say, I want to understand 
what the algorithm is doing, don't want to be told how the microprocessor works. They don't want to understand about, you know, Claude Shannon's information theory or <laughs> notions yeah. about, you know, throughput and lithography or silicon photonics. That's not what they're asking about, right? And I don't actually think they're asking to have the maths explained to them either, because were you to say to most people, look, actually, machine learning and most machine learning is just statistics. Like, you know, there's not a lot going on in there that's magic. Most of those algorithms are predicated on things you probably were exposed to in high school math. You didn't enjoy them necessarily, but, you know, we taught you about probability and you learned a little bit about regression. <laughs> you may not have learned about Markov models, but actually, if I were to explain them to you, you'd kind of grok what they were about. Mm-hmm. And so there's a bit that says we're not good at separating out the piece of the machine learning puzzle that's just about maths or math, as Americans would say. Sorry, I've corrected back to my Australian. It's about mathematics and numbers. Of course, even there, you'd want to roll back and say, let's go understand the history of statistics, because that's a devastating read when you look back into that and realize its relationship to the eugenics project, which I become deeply uncomfortable, in fact, about the the numbers, the rules of numbers that sit inside statistics that in turn sit inside machine learning. Those have a very problematic history. So, you know, do we want that piece of explicability? Probably not. You know, are we asking what kinds of algorithms are being deployed at what rate with what sort of optimizations? I don't think that's what people are actually asking for either. I think the ask more here is about explain to me the moral equivalent of your curatorial editorial process. Explain to me your motive, <laughs> as in why are you doing those things, and be willing to answer it in a way that makes sense to me. Because let's think about some of those other things I named, right? The New York Times has to explain its editorial process all the time and has been castigated by presidents for their choices about what goes on the front page or not. But we all know what the New York Times is doing, at least at some level. It sells newspapers. It makes money. Some of it is through advertising. In the last 20 years, it would be seen as being an agent of the left, even though on its masthead, it does just say all the news, you know, all the news that's fit to print kind of category. So I think one of the challenges here is making sense of the request for explicability, and then making explicability that in turn makes sense. And this is, put, and let's be clear, I this is not me saying you shouldn't have to explain things because it's complicated or because it's dense. It's me saying, I think we need to be much clearer about what the ask is, because I don't think the ask is to say, print your code, because that doesn't help anyone. And I do think one of the challenges that we absolutely have in this space is that we also need to bring not just our citizens along, but our regulators. Having sat in conversations in multiple countries and jurisdictions with regulators who themselves didn't understand the objects we were talking about makes it really quite difficult. So I think, you know, there's a project on the part of technology companies and universities and governments to work out how to bring each other up to speed in these conversations and be willing to kind of unpack the pieces of the puzzle too. And, you know, Tulsi, you and I have talked about this before, but I think one of the remarkable challenges we have in this space is the conflation of AI, machine learning, and algorithms. And being much less loose in our language here is hugely important. And then, you know, I think a little bit of the added, my added desire, not anyone else's, my added desire to make it more complicated by saying it's not actually about AI, it's about AIs. Because <laughs> I can guarantee you have multiple algorithms running inside Lemonade. There are multiple different kinds of workloads. The point at which you have something that is genuinely autonomous, self-learning and functioning, you won't just have one, you'll probably have several. And there's something about wanting to remind people that the AI of which we are speaking is not the one that science fiction gave us, right? It's not singular monolithic and wanting to take over the world. 
it's small and fragmented and wanting to vacuum your floors and possibly change your traffic lights and occasionally, you know, send content to your phone predictively. <laughs> so, you know, it's, and they don't all speak to each other. At least I'm hoping that the traffic lights and the robots are not in constant dialogue. That would cause me some concern. Yeah, at least not yet. <laughs> not yet. And if they were, what would they be talking about? Cats, probably. <laughs> I mean, it is interesting, though, because I do feel like the ask is different from different parties, right? Like, I think the regulators want to know different things than the end user does. And actually, Daniel, I'll pick on you on this for a little bit, because I think to your point about the language that we use, it's actually interesting. Lemonade, the way that it interfaces with users is through chatbots, right? And these chatbots have names and they're called specifically AI Jim and AI Maya. And Genevieve, this is like particularly interesting in the context of the point you just made, right? In that it's not necessarily one monolithic system. It's a combination of many parts that are coming together, but have been simplified for the purpose of the user to be able to engage, right? And I'm, I'm curious, Daniel, like how those two things map for you. It's a perennial challenge. I think Genevieve put it beautifully, but there are so many different questions being asked and most customers are asking none whatsoever. So you've got a situation where some people really just want to understand their coverage is better because people struggle forget with AI, just with understanding what the hell this policy is. And inevitably, when they come to make a claim, this, you know, I thought I was getting this and I, I was in fact getting that. And that along with everything else, we try to solve, if you use our apps, you'll see very simple icons, you know, a picture of a storm, a picture of an earthquake, a picture of, of a, a fire. And we try to simplify things to the point that at a glance, you get a sense of what you're buying. There is inherent imprecision by doing that right? It is, it, you are sacrificing precision for readability, if you like. And oftentimes I've had people say, oh, well, that's not transparent. And I feel quite strongly that it's the other way around. You know, the, the road to informed consent is perhaps paved with good intentions, but the end result, uh, you know, I have read and I agree to the terms is almost always a lie. And there's 17 pages of legalese hiding behind that. And regulators feel good about that. And lawyers feel good about that. And I feel terrible about that because it's not really helping people like me or my wife or my kids or my parents understand anything. And I'm a trained lawyer. <laughs> and I never read those things. So I, I do think whether we're talking about AI or about products more, more generally, there is something very misleading about and actually sinister about how a lot of people think about transparency. There's something deeply opaque about it. I came across a quote from Margaret Atwood. She said that nothing is more opaque than absolute transparency. And you see that, that you can just dump information in the reams and reams of legally precise stuff and it satisfies the lawyers and it doesn't satisfy the underlying needs. So we do try to make things understandable, but anytime you use shorthands, it becomes more approachable, more readable, more instantaneously comprehensible to whoever's looking at it at the expense of precision. You are simplifying things. Daniel, do you think that the request for transparency is actually something else? I mean, I've often wondered about this, right? When I say, could you be more transparent or more explicable, is what I'm actually saying, tell me what your, your motive is here. Like, tell me what you're trying to do so that I can understand why this is the artifact, as in, tell me what your intentionality is, which is not the same as explicability or transparency. So more the why than the what in some ways. Yeah, it's basically like, you know, what's your motive here? I mean, it's like, you know, I think many people forget what they have 
either allowed themselves or been uh, slight of handed out of what the motive of lots of organizations and institutions in our lives are. And I sometimes think that request for transparency or explicability is really less about tell me the tool, but tell me the intent. And then I think, you know, part of it is it's less easily solved by telling you the tool <laughs> because that's not really what I care about. I want to know what you're doing with it because you're going to go build another one later. Daniel, I had a colleague of mine at the Royal College of Art in London, and one of her students one year built in the interaction design program, built a baby printer. And what the printer did was spit out, it printed on like the rolls that come out of cash registers. It printed out, used to come out of cash registers. God. <laughs> The, the paper rolls in cash registers back when we had those things, and it printed out all of your terms and conditions, and it would just attach in, find every term and condition you'd signed, and then just print them all out in these reams of paper that were terrible for the environment, obviously. But it was a lovely- Oh, my God. I don't even want to know how long mine would be if that were to print out. It was a really lovely speculative future interaction design object to basically remind you precisely of that point of that we actually assent to all these things without ever looking at them. And you're right to say- those are obfuscations in some ways, right? They protect companies and, in fact, in some ways disenfranchise human beings. And that's hardly new. I mean, you can think about the treaties that were used to colonize America, New Zealand, multiple other places in the world as being artifacts of not dissimilar deception. Here's a, here's a legal document. Legal document will told you what's in it. <laughs> Good luck ever getting you to kind of, you know, bind that back to us again. So, I mean, there's sort of the whole history of the way documents are used to codify relationships is also a deeply problematic one. But I do I do take your point about notions around transparency and explicability. And then I mean I guess the the good anthropologist in would want to ask the other question, which is that of course in also asserting the notion of explicability and transparency, those also assert notions about power sitting underneath of those, explicable to whom, by whom, as understood by whom, transparent to whom, for whom, at whose expense. You know, what's the power relationship in that that gets to say, well, yes, I'll be transparent to you, but only under these circumstances. There's sort of something in it that Tulsa will remember because we made her read some of this. This is a bit Foucault, right? Is the notions about, you know, power and the lines of its transmission. I mean, there's very much a sort of lurking in all of this in this appearance of making a flat landscape where an organization makes its things explicable to its consumers or its citizens, I suspect what it also actually does is reinforce certain forms of structural power. Because as you say, Daniel, it is the organization who decides how to make things transparent and, you know, gets to decide, you know, what the form of transparency looks like, which may be a 30-page legal document. It's a fascinating direction you're taking in terms of motives. I connect to that, I have to say. The legal solutions are, are no solutions at all. PayPal's terms are longer than Shakespeare's Hamlet, literally. So you're not going to read that. And, and it's probably less comprehensible to most people than Shakespeare's Hamlet. So, you know, th there are real challenges there. But, you know, it comes full cycle back to your storytelling, I think, at the beginning, because the stories that we tell about the companies that we work for are pretty subjective quite aside from the cynical kind of power play dimension that you're adding in there, I'm a founder of a company. I'd love to tell you about my company and why it's such a good and well-intentioned organization. But as I said, you know, insurance has other stories told about it. But you touch on something beyond kind of the storytelling aspect of it. You touch on something very interesting to me. We set out, my co-founder and I in the early days, to we don't come from the world of insurance. We try to figure out why do people hate insurance companies? 
given that at a mathematical level, it's kind of a social good, but nobody thinks about it in those terms whatsoever. And that, that was fascinating to us. And we, we reached out to Nobel laureates in game theory and behavioral economics in the early days to really try and, and understand that. And we reached the conclusion that the game was the problem rather than the players. There were incentive structures within insurance where when you come to make a claim, if I deny your claim, I get richer, you get poorer, and vice versa. There is a deeply perceived conflict of interest because we're fighting over the same coin. And we thought that until you solve that, having well-intentioned people won't help because the problem isn't the players, as I say, it's the game. And we did what we did. We've restructured the whole incentive structures at Lemonade in order that I cannot make money by denying your claim. It's a conversation for another podcast. But it does beget, I think, the discussion about if incentives are, are wrong, and it's more about incentives than intentionality. You know, Facebook has wonderful stories about it, how it's connecting everybody. The reality is different, but the incentives are very clear there, which is to push more ads. So I think a focus on incentives would be helpful. Do you think the other piece of that, apart the problem of the disconnect between the way one thinks about, you know, the way an insurance company might think about itself and the way its customers think about it. Do you think part of the problem there, so Tulsi will also remember this from the bad old days, I used to say when I was running UX teams that our job was to work out what is the single promise around which a service or a product should be configured, right? And one of the I think problems used to arise when people would make things more complicated than they needed to be, right? It's like, you know, what's the single promise of a television, which I was working on at one point in my life? And the single promise that television makes is it's one button to a story that will move you. It can be a terrible story and no one else may like it, but it's one button. Anything else that makes that more complicated, you are not doing television, you know, good service. If I wave my mobile phone at you and say the word phone in the, the title of this is a disconcerting, possibly sleight of hand, because really what a mobile phone does is it promises you you'll never be bored again. <laughs> That's all it promises, right? It doesn't actually promise phone calls. It just promises you'll always have something to do when you're feeling twitchy at a train station. What is it that cars promise? It's not actually getting you from point A to point B. It's the, the notion you could go anywhere, right? And so, you know, what's the promise that insurance makes? Well, in some ways, it's not that it will pay your claim. That's not the promise. What I suspect for many people, the promise of insurance is you're protected. And of course, I imagine you could see that promise to think that nothing bad will ever happen to you, which is, of course, not what being protected means, right? It means if something bad does happen, there can be some kind of reassemblage or safety in it, right? And so there's something about the disconnect between the perception of the promise or the promise and the what is the reality of the mechanism. And so, you know, often in those places, it's where the promise you think you're delivering and the promise that people think they're getting are not the same promise. You can get very messy very quickly. This was true in television when my colleagues decided that what they really should do was put a Microsoft Windows CE box next to a television and turn television into uh, basically into an early desktop. And they couldn't work out where that was. That just didn't go very well. And I'm like, because people don't want to do Excel spreadsheets on their television screens. Have you lost your minds? I'm like, no, no, it's great. I'm like, not really. <laughs> when people said they wanted more content, that wasn't it. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a little bit about, you know, how you think about what the promise is and how you deliver it is for me a kind of always an interesting question. And it's fascinating for me thinking about it because I believe it or not, Daniel, I have thought about insurance in the past because I was really interested in notions about how we think about assurance in the space of AI. What would it mean to assure AI? And it sent me off reading back about Lloyd's of London and all the early notions about calculating risk and all that stuff. So I've been pondering the insurance problem, but I hadn't really thought about it quite that and thought about it through that lens. And that seems like a very beautiful place actually to stop this conversation for today. I think that the lesson also of just even as we build and design any product, thinking about the promise and the problem, right? 
not what's cool or fancy, but but really what is the promise that we're trying to make and how do we deliver that in the most intentional way, in the most honest way possible to users. And that becomes especially important in the insurance place when you are dealing with users, you're, you're engaging with users when they're at their most vulnerable, right? And how do you deliver that promise? And you're literally making a promise. Yeah, you are. The product is a promise. Yeah, it is. And as you say, Tulsi, it's a promise you make when someone isn't in trouble about what they will be when they are. And that's an interesting dynamic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the intersection of the promise and do I have the incentive structure to fulfill the promise when the day comes? And the disconnect there is really interesting. Thank you. This was a wonderful discussion. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. I really appreciate it. It was lovely to get to see you. It was lovely to get to meet you, Daniel. say a huge thank you to Genevieve for coming on the show. I always learn so much from her and thank you for giving us insight today on the importance of transparency, but also really truly the importance of history and of stories as we're building the future of artificial intelligence. Please be sure to subscribe if you haven't already so you never miss an episode. And if you learned something, leave a review and let us know what it was. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Tulsi Doshi. This has been Benevolent Bots, exploring the intricate world of AI and insurance brought to you by Lemonade.